as we come to Revelation 19 and verse 17 to 21, I wanted to play that clip because unfortunately today many, many people form their theology on what happens in the end times by movies like this. And it's a good movie and J.R. Tolkien was trying to set the picture there of the fight between good and evil. But when filmmakers climb in, Peter Jackson's a good filmmaker, they take over a bit. Um, and so many, many believers and many unbelievers shape their ideas about what happens in the end times by things like this and also by books written about the end times. So let's look today, what does Scripture say? And what can we learn from that? And how can we be encouraged as we look at God's Word and as we approach the time when Christ will return? So let's read together Revelation 19 and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 through to verse 21 because it's a unit. It describes one picture as we've seen in Revelation, the picture of this last battle uh, when Jesus Christ confronts those who represent evil. So let's read together from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns or diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now if you're a visitor here with us this morning, we're in the middle, well actually we're coming towards the end of our studies in Revelation and so it might all seem a bit uh, strange to you. But um, I'll try and help you through some of what we're going through here today. The other references to this last battle are I've put them over there at the bottom, Revelation 16, verse 12 to 16, Revelation 17, 14, and then we'll come to Revelation 20, verse 8 to 10. And they together form a picture of this last battle. 
Now remember the last battle is a picture given to us. Remember the format of Revelation? It is a series of pictures to teach us specific lessons. And the picture we get here is of the triumphant Christ going out with his army behind him and they are confronting all those who would represent evil. And then we see what happens to evil. And so we need to take the lesson from the picture. Let's not look at the details and form our theology on this is going to happen, that's going to happen, they're going to be horses, they're going to be... It doesn't work like that. If you're a literalist, go for it. You see, what does Scripture say about what will happen and about what will happen to evil? And Scripture says this morning through this passage, evil will be definitively conquered and evil will no more rise its head when Christ brings his final judgment. That's the summary. So I've said it, we can go home. Let's see these pictures. You need to understand this clearly. Today we're seeing what happens to the beast and his followers. Next week we're going to look at Satan's role in the millennium and his fate. So it's a different picture again. Don't put an arrow from one to the other and say this happens, then that happens, then that happens because you're going to run into interpretive problems. And that's why Revelation 20, which we'll come to, is such a difficult one because people want to join the dots and put arrows there and say this is happening, then that's happening. It can't happen like that. So see the pictures. Later we're going to see the judgment which comes on people who do not believe. Chapter 20. So that's the first part of the introduction. The second part of the introduction is that this is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. The scene that we're seeing in front of us is a scene which is described in Ezekiel chapter 38 to 39. If you want to take those references, we haven't got time to read through those. Joel chapter 3, Zechariah 14 and many others. Go and use your reference and your concordance and look them up. But it describes the final defeat of God's and Israel's enemies by God. And you have terms like Gog and Magog and Armageddon and go and look up those terms. We can't do it this morning. But it describes the Old Testament prophecies where the prophet said, God says, Evil will be overcome. And in Israel's history, many, many times it was repeated. The enemies that came against the nation of Israel were often defeated. But then Israel sinned again. And then God brought judgment on them again. And again the enemies were defeated. And the picture God is bringing to them is that yes, my grace is sufficient for you, but you will carry on sinning. But in the end it will stop. And good will be there forever with no more evil around. Where's the location of this battle? Well, if you go and look at the various prophecies all over the Old Testament, it speaks about Jerusalem, it speaks about Mount Zion, it speaks about Megiddo, it speaks about Armageddon. And so how can it all be in, one, in those different places all at once? Well, obviously that's a clue for us. It can't be. And so we learn from Scripture that this last battle will, will take place at no fixed location because it's a picture here for us. And so it's not something you can track with your GPS, I'm sorry to say. It's a typological picture. 
Location is irrelevant because Scripture gives us no definitive answer. And so we can't go and put an answer in there. You see, what is important is not the location, but the action of the Lord in, in the battle. That's the relevant point. So that's all I want to say about prophecy. Let's go and look at this battle which takes place. We looked at half of it, um, the preparation for it last week. What a glorious scene. Christ going out on that white charger of a horse. And I'm adding that a bit in. It, it must have been a beautiful picture that John saw and that he tried to put through to his readers, those who would hear this message, so that they'd be encouraged in their situations where they were looking around them and they were seeing destruction all around them. They were seeing persecution coming upon them. And they were thinking, is this what it's about? Is this the end? And John was trying to encourage them and saying, no, it's not the end. Christ will come. He will overcome evil. This is who He is. And He gives the name of Christ, the faithful and true one. The one who is the Word of God and the various ones we looked at last week. And you're saying to them, trust Him. Trust His Word. It will come through in the end. Jesus will be there for you. And yes, you've got to suffer now for a while, but good will conquer evil. That is the final result. Take hope. So what will happen to those who represent evil? Satan, the beast, and those who have the mark of the beast on them. Well, let's look at verses 17 to 18 in your text. John describes the scene of this angel standing in the sun. He's so holy because he comes from God's presence as if he's standing there with the sun behind him. He can't see the face of the angel because it's not important. What is important is that he's coming with a message from God, the glorious one seated on his throne. And this angel describes this ghastly feast. And as he's stands in the heavens, he calls with a loud voice, calling all the birds that were flying in mid-heaven or flying directly overhead. Now, this isn't just made up for this scene. If you go and read the Old Testament prophecies of Gog and Magog, you'll see that he's quoting here from Ezekiel, he's quoting from various books where vultures would come and descend on the enemies of the Lord when he's brought his judgment and they'll be devoured by that which is unclean. Anyone seen a vulture in real life? It's not a bird I would put my arm around and give a big hug. It's a filthy thing because it climbs into dead bodies and so it's think neck is dirty and um, it's covered in germs and filth because it is a scavenger and so it's an unclean thing and it's listed as one of the unclean birds in Scripture and so to touch one of these you would be ceremonially unclean. Well, This picture here is of that which is unthinkable nearly, that these vultures are called to come and gorge on the enemies of God with their uncleanness, to make them ceremonially unclean, the ultimate judgment of God on them. But note that he announces the outcome of the battle before the battle's even happened. He's calling the birds to come and gorge on the enemies of God who will be there. Why does he do that? Why does he do it in that order? Why doesn't he describe the battle first and then call the the birds to come and gorge themselves? Well, it's because he knows who's in charge. Who is this message from? It's the message from Jesus Christ to encourage his church 
And what is he saying by announcing the, out- the result of the battle first? He's saying the sovereign God is present at this battle. So what's the outcome going to be? He's going to be victorious. So call the birds. Let them come. The outcome is secure. Do you get the point there? And so these carrion birds are called to come. That which is unclean. Another thing that, that we notice here is that by calling these birds to come and eat on those who would be destroyed, we see that the Old Testamental covenantal curse is fulfilled in the scene. Where do I get this from? Well, from Deuteronomy. And you need to turn there with me. It's way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where we read about the Old Testament covenantal curses. And these were curses that God warned Israel about to say that if you do not listen to my laws, then this will happen to you. I will bring down my curses on you. And so in Deuteronomy, which is way back in the Old Testament, right at the beginning, uh, in chapter 28, uh, sorry, yes, chapter 28, verse 26, we read this. So he's saying, if you do not listen to my commands, this is what will happen to you, verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. In other words, they're going to chase you all over the place and scatter you. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. Do you see where we're getting this picture from now in Revelation? God is saying, I will fulfill this on those who will not listen to my commands. They will be eaten in the picture by the birds of the air. And so why does he bring this picture? Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 24 says this, I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. What is that all about? It's describing to us the holiness of God. He's a holy God. He's never changed. He's the unchanging God. And where sin is present, He must deal with it. And here at the end of history, He will deal with all those who are unholy before Him. He will deal with their uncleanness and their transgressions. And He will hide His face of mercy on them. God is just being God. He is the unchanging one. He is the holy God. What a contrast to the picture of the feast of the Lamb. That glorious wedding feast with the bride all dressed up. And there's music in heaven. And there's food. And there's celebration because the bridegroom has come for the bride. And they will be together. What a glorious picture. And yet what a contrast we have to read about now. For all those who do not have the bridegroom in their lives. Jesus Christ. Well, what happens at this battle? Revelation chapter 16, which Mike um, shared with us a few weeks ago, speaks about the battle of Armageddon. Well, it's just another one of the locations that's listed, but it's the same battle being referred to, the picture that is given to us. Who's fighting against who in this battle? Well, in John's day, the church saw the power of Rome at work and they felt the power of Rome on their own lives. They saw as they got arrested, as they got put into uh, imprisonment, as they, like John, got put onto the Isle of Patmos. 
and to them they wondered, what is going to happen to this evil power? Is it ever going to come to an end? And what's John saying to them? He's saying, yes, God will deal with them too, so take hope. This isn't the end. Look higher than the power of Rome. Look to see what is happening behind them. God is also at work. So don't give up. Who's against who in this battle? Well, we see that according to the descriptions in, in verse 19, and it describes them there, that everyone gathered there are the kings and the captains. These are all the people whose flesh is going to be eaten. So just deduce who's here. It's the kings, those, as we've seen earlier in Revelation, those who have given themselves to Babylon, those who have given themselves over to the pleasures of this world and led others in doing evil before the Lord. The kings of the earth, the flesh of the captains, those who led the armies to persecute God's people, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, who were against the Lord, who were evil before Him. Those are the ones that are set up in this battle against Jesus Christ and His army. And they're up against the sovereign warrior Jesus Christ that we saw. And they're also up against His unchanging word because the description we see in the previous section was He rides out with the sword coming out of His mouth, right? And so the truth is going to do its work work of judgment. He is the unchanging God. His truth doesn't change and so He will judge all men according to what He has revealed to them. And so He rides out with His unchanging word. And who else is in the picture? The followers of Jesus Christ. Those who at that time are then in heaven with Him, in this picture. But here's the thing, you see, it's a bit of a one-sided battle and that's why it really differs from what we saw earlier. It's not good against evil and it's kind of equally, uh, I hope they win if they fight well on the day. It's not, I hope good wins because I hope they're stronger than evil at this stage. It is not an equal battle at all. It's a bit of an anticlimax battle. Because all all the soldiers are arrayed, Jesus Christ comes out with his army and then what happens? It's over. Because fire descends, if you go and read um, Revelation chapter 20, which gives us more of an added picture, fire descends and burns the enemies of God and the beast and his followers are taken and put into the lake of sulfur which burns forever. God's judgment. It's an anticlimax. Not a sword is lifted. The only sword which works is the one coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ because he utters his word of judgment and it's done. Sovereign God at work. It's a very one-sided battle. And it's supposed to be described in this way because isn't that what sovereign God means? He's all-powerful. How can it be a tussle between Him and evil? He will overcome and fully overcome and it's going to happen suddenly. There's going to be no weapons. No weapons are described here. There's no fight involved here. The beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and which burns forever. And if you want to read more about that, Jesus mentioned this specifically in Matthew chapter 25. And this is not in the book of Revelation now. This is Jesus himself speaking about what would happen 
Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. This is what he said. Jesus said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there are those today who say that there is no hell. Well, Jesus described a literal hell where those who do not believe will be thrown. Now, what that looks like is a lot of symbolical languages used in Scripture about fire and brimstone and unending pain and worms which gnaw at you. Whatever it is one day, it's going to be a horrendous place. But it is a literal hell. God will punish those who do not hear Him and listen to Him. And there will be a literal heaven where those who do give their hearts to Him will go and they will be with Him forever. It is a literal heaven and a literal hell described. And so here is part of that description that is given through the prophet John. And what happens to those who do not hear? They are also struck down with the sword. The Word of God works. John chapter 12 verse 48 speaks about this. John chapter 12 verse 48 says this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The Word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Do you see that? What is going to judge people? The Word will judge them. Who wields the Word? Jesus Christ the judge. And He will judge by what He has revealed through His Word. It will judge. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 to 13 tells us exactly how the Word works. It describes to us how God's, God's Word works inside of us. Let's look at that together. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. This is how God's Word works. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and here it is, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So how does God's word judge? It reads the soul and it judges by that relationship with Jesus Christ and his word. So that's what God uses in the scene. That's all I can say about the battle. I'm sorry, if you wanted more blood and guts and action, that's all I've got. You'll have to read books and see movies. So what do we do with this? Well, there's three things I just want to bring in as application this morning. What do we do with the scene? I want to firstly put you, which feast will you be at? As you're sitting here, you know your soul before the Lord God. Are you in relationship with Him or out of relationship with Him? Because either way, you've got a relationship to Jesus Christ. He's either your Saviour or your Judge as you're seated here. 
Don't think of what you think it will be one day. Where are you right now? Because that is where you'll be at that feast. Unless something changes in the meantime. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you know Jesus Christ, then you will be, and He assures you through His Word over and over, you will be at that wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's going to be a wondrous occasion. It's going to be far greater than anything we can imagine. But He also warns at the same time that if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you are a rebel to His revealed Word to you, if you still do not have Him as Lord and Saviour in your life, you will be at the only other venue at that time and that is at the feast where these birds are described. Which is going to be a place full of horror far more than we can ever imagine. But there's only one of two places to be. God's Word comes out again this morning as a warning. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved while there is still time. Isaiah chapter 45, and this is way back in the Old Testament now. Isaiah chapter 45 tells you this, and this is God calling to you this morning, if you are not yet a believer, listen to His Word. This is what He says to you. Verse, chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to Me and be saved. I've used that verse over and over in this book. The Lord says to you this morning, through His prophet, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. That includes you. For I am God and there is no other. The problem is, you see, if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour yet, there is a God in your life and it's you and behind you is Satan. The Lord says to you this morning, turn to me. I am the only God. Turn to me and be saved. You've heard Him call to you this morning. Why would you turn against that call? The second point I want to make this morning is this one. And this is to believers, my last two points. And this is to encourage you. God has put us in this earth. He's put us in this world. He's put us in Wanganui with a specific purpose. What is that? To go and live out Christ to our friends and neighbours, alright? We have to be bright shining lights. And I want to tell you this morning to trust in the power of the Word as you witness. You see, some people say, I need to just tell them about my own story. And I need to tell them about what God has done for me. Yes, you must. But give, him, give them His Word as well. They need to hear His Word. This is His breathed out Word to us. And the truth from His Word is what saves people. Not your story. Give them His Word. Spurgeon said it in a way only Spurgeon could. He said, release the lion of God's Word. It will do its own roaring. Don't try and roar in, God's, in the place of God's Word. Give them His Word. It will do its own roaring in their souls. You see, it's not just the book this. This is God's inspired Word to us. And when people hear the truth from His Word, the Holy Spirit takes that truth and He changes it in their hearts. And where there was darkness, He starts to bring that glimmer of light. And then He changes that to full-blown light. 
but he does that through his word. So trust the word. And to do that, we need to memorize the word. We need to have our Bibles with us. We need to know how we're going to use the word so that when we speak to others about this good news, we can actually give them the word. It's a bit embarrassing when we're trying to give people, tell them about God's word and we're stumbling around, we don't know where we're at and I think it's in the Bible somewhere. Uh, not sure if it was Old Testament, New Testament. How can that be a good ambassador for Jesus Christ? A good ambassador knows their bit. They know what they're going to say. And so we as believers have got the responsibility, know what you're going to say and then depend on the Spirit to use that to reach into others' lives. And so you need to study Scripture. Go to Two Ways to Live. Go and see how can I present the Gospel in a way that makes sense to people. And then don't plot off a little rhyme to them so that it all sounds artificial. Speak God's Word to them. Know what you're about. Those are the tools He's given you. But trust in the power of His Word as you witness. That sword will strike at the heart of the enemy who's dwelling in their hearts. Satan will run from that word. And then thirdly, I want to encourage you as believers by asking you this question. How do we as believers prepare for this picture that we've just looked at, this battle scene? How do we prepare for it? Well, firstly, I want to urge you, as we saw last week, wear your robes of righteousness. God has prepared works for us to do beforehand, way before eternity. He prepared, because He's the all-knowing God, He prepared works for you and I to do. He prepared your neighbours to come and live next to you so that you could speak to them. And in my case, He prepared guests who would come and live in my guest house so that in some way I could reach out to them with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it's through the way I speak to them or the questions that they ask then I can answer. But He's prepared these things for us to do. And when the moment comes, we need to stand up and we need to be doing the works God has given to us. And by doing that, we are wearing the white robes, the works of Jesus Christ and the way He influences people in our lives and through our lives. But do those works of righteousness prepared for you. Wear your testimony of Jesus Christ brightly. Don't be scared to fly the flag of who you are. Be a witness for Jesus Christ. A righteous life is a powerful testimony. When you tell other people how Jesus has worked in your life and how He became real to you, that's a powerful testimony in other people's lives. Be courageous. Speak it. Tell others. Don't keep silent. Trust Him to use that. And then, lastly, I want you, as you prepare yourself for this picture of this battle, is to consider the Lord of the battle. Look again at who this is that's riding out the head of that army. And you see, because when your vision is filled with who Christ is, your heart will be prepared for His coming. Isn't that what Jesus tried to teach His disciples through those parables in Matthew? Where He spoke about the, the wise virgins who prepared for the Lord, uh, the master of the house to come back after His wedding and they had to prepare, be prepared for His coming. And those who didn't have their wicks trimmed and their lamps burning couldn't be prepared for when the Master came and they'd have to first scuttle off and try and get their lamps filled and then they'd miss the whole thing. Consider who the Lord of the battle is who's coming. 
and who's going to be fighting that battle. Because if you fill your mind with who Jesus Christ is, your heart will be prepared for His coming. And if your heart is prepared, your hands and your feet will be about His business. When you take your eyes off Jesus Christ, your hands and your feet go off and do all their own things. But fill your eyes with the vision of Jesus Christ and your hands and your feet will do His bidding too. And if you're doing His bidding and you've got this picture of Jesus Christ in your mind's eye, you will not fear Satan and his agents because your mind is filled with Jesus Christ. And if your mind and your eyes are on Jesus Christ, then you will not fear whatever may come your way in life. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be sickness. It could be poverty. You will not fear those things because who is riding out ahead of you? It's Jesus Christ. And He will look after you. He's sovereign God. He is the one who is in control. So see the one who is riding out in this battle and be filled with Jesus Christ. Martin Luther really understood this. In 1527 he wrote this beautiful hymn. And this is what he said. Look at the words. Did we in our own strength confide? Then our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Speaking about Jesus Christ. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He, Lord Sabaoth, and that means Lord of the heavenly armies. That's His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, and sometimes we feel like that when things come against us, right? We will not fear. Why? For God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Isn't that what Christ is going to do? That's what the scene is all about that we've just read about. And we'll come to it again later in Revelation chapter 20. Now, I've got homework for you. To help us through with this. And that's why I put it in the bulletin for you. That little insert we put in there on the glories of Jesus Christ. To help you and I to fill our minds with Jesus Christ. Not just this week, but this coming month and even this year. Here's your homework. John MacArthur has given us a beautiful summary of who Jesus Christ is. And he's put it all in one space for us. With scripture references so we can go and look it up and check it. But this is where he gets these things from. And I'm not going to read through all of this, but I would urge you to please go and do that. Go and look through these passages of Scripture and these descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. Look at them one at a time and let your soul ponder on them. Because as your soul thinks on these things, your eyes will be filled with the vision of Jesus Christ and your soul will be refreshed for whatever is happening to you. And it will prepare you for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But I just want to go through some of these with you. And let's just fill our eyes with the glories of who Jesus Christ is as we end the sermon here this morning in this time together. Halfway down there, 
He has no beginning and no end. Jesus Christ, He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our life. He is the living and the true way. He is the strength of Israel. He is the root and offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. He is faithful and true. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the champion. He is the elect one. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the righteous servant. He is the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. He is the man of sorrows. He is the light. He is the Son of Man. He is the vine. He is the bread of life. He is the door. He is the Lord. He is prophet, priest and king. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our righteousness. He is the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Chief Shepherd. He is the Lord God of hosts. He is the Lord of the nations. He is the Lion of Judah, the Living Word, the Rock of Salvation, the Eternal Spirit. He is the Ancient of Days, Creator and Comforter, Messiah. He is the Great I Am. That is the Lord who rides ahead of us. He is the same Lord who has brought us from darkness to light. Trust in Him. Trust in His Word. And then go and serve Him in this week. Amen. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You that even in the middle of this picture of this ghastly feast of Your judgment, we know that You are there and You are the one who is sovereign God and You are bringing about this judgment because You are the unchanging and holy God. And Lord, as we go out into this week and as we speak to others about where they are at in life and how they are to face eternity and who will they face eternity with and through, may we use Your Word May we use the story of what you've done in our hearts and our lives. And may we be courageous in standing up and saying, Yes, I am a believer, a Christ follower, and I will follow him until he comes again. I am not scared because he is my sovereign Lord and Master. And so I need to speak to you about his love and his judgment. Will you listen to his word? Lord, use us in this week. I pray. And as we interact with our families, as we interact with our colleagues, as we interact with our children, may Jesus Christ be made high and lifted up. Use us, we pray, for your glory.